Good morning. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Now there, now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 30 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in his condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. It's good to be back with you all this morning. Uh, Lorinda and I had the opportunity to head out to LeGrand, and uh, I had the opportunity to fill in as a, a guest speaker for a weekend. Uh, I've been blessed so often by Kyle uh, preaching for me, uh, usually about once a month. Uh, I thought I'd return the favor for someone else who maybe doesn't get as many Sundays uh, off as I do. Uh, that said, it's good to be home. Uh, anytime that I go and I worship with another group, it's wonderful to remember that there are Christians worshiping everywhere on Sunday morning, but this is my family. This is my group of people, the people that I get to interact with on a weekly basis, whose names I know, whose hands I've shook a hundred times, not the first time. So I, I know what I'm going to get. Uh, you know, if someone's going to squeeze my hand a little too hard, I know ahead of time and I can brace for it. You go and visit another congregation and you get that one guy who, you know, firm handshake was like the thing his father ingrained in him at like six years old. He wants to really wrestle your hand. Not that that happened last week. This morning, we're continuing our series on the Gospel of John. Uh, We've been talking about how Jesus comes and he dwells among us. And Jesus finds himself in, in a lot of different situations with a lot of different people. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus and this Pharisee named Nicodemus and the way that the two of them interact. And Jesus, Jesus really speaks to Nicodemus in his own language, uh, speaks to him in ways that are, are going to have some significant context for him in the coming years in Nicodemus' life. Kyle shared with us about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, uh, who has a very different religious background, who has maybe a sordid history in some ways that is kind of, I might say, the ultimate outsider in, in her own context. Um, she has to come to the well in the middle of the day to avoid those who maybe look down on her. Um, and now we're moving into a, another couple of interactions where Jesus, Jesus finds himself interacting with an individual that we translate as official, and a paralyzed man. And what I find interesting about it is that everyone that Jesus encounters, he, 
he spends time with, he listens to them, he hears what it is that's important to them, but he doesn't ignore their need. Nicodemus has a need for knowledge, understanding, wisdom. This is how he operates. This is what his world is about, understanding the deep things of Scripture. To be a Pharisee meant that you knew the Bible inside and out. You, you could read the Scripture, you could interpret the Scripture, you could teach the Scripture. His life was built on this wisdom and understanding. The Samaritan woman was a person deeply in need of relationship, deeply in need of someone to sit and listen, to know her story and to know her. And what we see with Jesus is that he, he not only knows her story, he can tell her story. And more importantly than that, he can tell her the things she most needs to hear. That God, who has been working through history, has brought about the thing she's long been hoping for, the Messiah. And when we encounter this particular uh, official that we're reading about this morning, it's, it's an interesting sort of uh, hearkening back to the book of Exodus, and I'll tell you why that is. So we, we have this moment, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, that first word, uh, th- that title that's given, official, um, I, I wanted to know, is this person a Jew? Is this person a Greek? Is this you know, a person who is um, significant in one culture or multiple cultures? And the Bible doesn't really tell us. In fact, the choice of the word official makes it a little ambiguous what's being talked about. But that word is, is actually, it's a diminutive title for a king, It's describing him as like a little king, like a small king, someone who's not so great and grand, but a person of nobility, who has a realm of influence, an area in which he he maybe gets to make decisions and decide how things are going to work and tell people how things are going to be. But he's a little king, not the big king. And the other interesting thing about this passage, so he comes and, of course, he's, he's got a son who's very ill. And he comes to Jesus and he asks for him to do something about it. And in the exchange that David read with us, there's this, you know, do something about my son, make my son well. And Jesus doesn't ignore him. But Jesus makes a, a really interesting statement that seems initially a little out of place. He says... Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I always thought this was interesting. You know, we we talk sometimes about how John uses the word sign over and over and over again. It's a little bit of like, you know, reading into Scripture something that's not necessarily there. The, The word sign is significant, but there are multiple times throughout the New Testament that the word sign is translated as miracle. And we just choose in John to translate it as sign multiple times because it fits with what John is trying to achieve in the explanation of the signs. So you're going to encounter in the book of Matthew this same word translated as miracle, depending on your translation. And sometimes people make a really big you know, deal out of, well, you know, John doesn't call them miracles. Well, John calls them exactly what everybody else calls them. But John is using them in some pretty unique ways. John, John doesn't label every miraculous thing that Jesus does a sign. He picks seven very specific things. 
We've already seen one of those. That was the, the wedding feast at Cana, right? Where he performs his first sign. He turns the water to wine. The Gospel of John is going to label this event here the second sign. And the funny thing about it is, you know, we, we mentioned this with the wedding feast at Cana. Jesus doesn't tell everybody, hey, I'm responsible for that. All the wine that flowed, all the people who got to enjoy that, that beverage, that wonderful good wine that came out at the end instead of at the beginning, that was me. It's the disciples and the servants that know about it. And the funny thing is here, instead of Jesus going and, and entering into the man's house and having the crowd follow him, nobody witnesses the signs, this sign, except the servants in the household of the little king. But they have to tell him that this has happened. Your son is well. Really? What time did that happen? And, and they have this whole conversation. It's very interesting. But you have this statement here from Jesus to this little king, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And I read that, and I read that, and I read that, and something stood out to me. The, the only other time I recall, now this may happen elsewhere in Scripture, but the only other time that popped into my mind where this phrase signs and wonders appears is actually in the book of Exodus. Chapter 7, verse 3 through 4, the beginning of chapter, uh, verse 4, it says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I started drawing some connections here. You know, you've got this little king, this, this man who's got a, a realm that he rules, a, a place that he is maybe a big fish in a small pond. Capernaum's not a particularly big town. But the little king of Capernaum has come to Jesus to ask for a sign, ask for a wonder to be performed. And Jesus says, if I don't, you won't believe. Of course, the king, the big king of the Old Testament, the Pharaoh, the man at the top of the heap in Exodus, not just a big fish in a small pond, an enormous fish, in the biggest pond that there is in the world at the time, isn't going to believe God no matter what signs or wonders are shown. And in the end, he loses his son as a result of this. You, you read that during the Passover feast, when the angel of the Lord crosses over Egypt, not even the household of Pharaoh was spared. And there's a loss over a lack of belief, a hardening of the heart, a determination to stay the course in the way that it's been stayed before. How different these two stories happen to be. You know, it's, it's sometimes uh, said that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I kind of wonder sometimes if one of the things that we're told over and over again in Scripture is be careful about how much power you try to accumulate for yourself. You look at the life of David, and at the beginning of his life, when he's just a shepherd, just in charge of his father's flocks, he's a man of deep faith, great faith. He's a, a poet. He's someone who's so passionate about his faith that he's willing to fight a giant on God's behalf because he doesn't want the army of the Lord mocked. Then he receives all this power. 
it's really is he's risen to the top. And so he becomes a man who commands an entire army and gets to command them from a distance. And he finds himself stumbling. But he's not so high and mighty that he can't be turned. He's not so distant from God and what God is doing in his life that he can't change, can't be reshaped, can't grow in his faith and overcome the struggle that he's faced. In fact, when he is humbled is the moment that he finds himself now prepared to be the king that God has asked him to be from the very beginning. We've got this little king here. This man who probably for most of his life thought that the power that he had was sufficient to do what he wanted to do. Accomplish whatever he wanted in his life. He'd risen to the top of his little town. And while there might be bigger kings out there, he knew the world that he ruled. But in his own house, he was powerless to save his son. And all the power of the world made no difference in his ability to change the outcome that the illness his son was facing might come to. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. It's interesting. This man who probably many times in his life has said, go, do. My will is going to be in your hands and you're going to execute it. Now hears from Jesus, go. It's done. There's nothing you can do about this situation. I'm not asking you to go and put your hands on the child. I'm not asking you to, to you know, pour water on him seven times. I'm not asking you to carry him down to the river. I'm not asking you to wash him. I'll do it. You are powerless in this situation but I'm not. And Jesus doesn't grandstand about it. His words are so simple, so straightforward. He he says, unless you see signs and wonders, and this is clearly a reference back to God saying, look, the people are going to believe because of the signs and wonders I'm having Moses do. Pharaoh, he's not going to believe even because of those signs and wonders. But here, this man believes without having seen the signs and wonders yet. Listen to those words of Jesus again. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, he's not seen them yet. He's not been back to the house. He doesn't know what's going on there. Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. What is the sign and wonder that happens here? Is it the raising of the child? Because Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, but the man believes before he's seen what we usually call the sign and the wonder. He believes the word Jesus spoke to him. 
the power of God is in his words. The things he says to us, what he knows about us, and how he communicates to us. Jesus is going to do some extraordinary things in the Gospel of John. He is going to do miraculous, marvelous, wondrous things. And anyone who had encountered any of these things would be blown away by them. In a couple of weeks, we're going to read about the feeding of the multitude. And man, talk about an enormous, wonderful sign. But the same crowd that believed because of that sign didn't intervene in his trial. They didn't stand up and try and stop what was going on. They believed. They were a little confused about what they believed, and Jesus clarifies to his disciples, hey, you know that sign I just showed everybody? That was really for you, and I'm expressing to you that I'm the bread of life. I don't want to preach that sermon just yet. What we see here is a man who believes based on Jesus' words, what he says he will do. Something in what Jesus says changes the heart of this man. So he goes back, and of course the servants report that his son is well, so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, The fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed and all his household. The man believes the words of Jesus. What does he believe in the second time? He believes Jesus is going to do what he's going to say, or what he says he's going to do. The second time he believes, and the whole household with him, does he believe the second time? The first time he believes that Jesus is good to do what he says he's going to do. And the second time he believes that Jesus is who we all know him to be. This little king encounters someone who has the power he doesn't. And he believes. His heart's not hardened. He doesn't get there and say, ah, he would have got well anyway. It's just coincidence. He believes. And we have this second man. In chapter 5, we're told that there's this pool and all the paralyzed individuals would, would try to get into the pool when the water was stirred. And there's one man, it says, who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. I'm 38 years old. I can't imagine... Having been an invalid, or actually, I'm 37? 37. I'll be 38 this year. Uh, Man, I don't even know how old I am. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. I can't imagine having been an invalid longer than I've been alive, right? This This is an expanse of time that is tremendously significant in anyone's life. We're not told that he sat at this pool every day for those 38 years. But I guarantee you for every day of those 38 years, he wished he wasn't an invalid. I can promise you that his experience in life was very different than the little king of Capernaum. 
This is not a man who has had any control or power over anything for 38 years. He even tells Jesus, when when Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? I guarantee you the thought in this guy's mind is like, are you kidding me? Do I want to be healed? Of course I want to be healed. Do you think I want to be like this? And I can imagine the dialogue going on in his head, but he's pretty reserved about it, right? And instead he just says, look, Jesus, I I want to get in the pool, but everyone rushes ahead of me when the waters are stirred, and I can't get in. There's no one to put me in the water. I am helpless. I've read a lot of people, you know, commentaries and preachers who say, you know, well, maybe this man is just making excuses for himself here. Jesus is asking about the sincerity of his, his attempts to get in the pool. I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus is genuinely asking him, do you want to be healed? Do you know what you want? He's not questioning whether or not this man wants to be healed in the sense that like, hey, you know, I think maybe you're just faking it here. You could do something about this if you really wanted to. There's nothing this man could do. And you have an official in chapter 4 who has all the power in the world over all the people around him, but he can't overcome the sickness of his son. And you have the man in chapter 5 who is paralyzed, who can't do anything for anyone, including himself. And they're both powerless. Both powerless in the situation that Jesus completely resolves in just a moment. See, Jesus doesn't encounter anyone in Scripture who doesn't need him. There is not a person that Jesus has an interaction with who doesn't need Jesus. From the disciples that he meets at the very beginning of the gospel to the last people that he sits on a beach with and feeds, every one of them, every name, every person, every official, every title, every every single possible configuration needs Jesus. From the little king of Capernaum to the paralyzed man sitting by the pool. You know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't say, I I doubt your need. Fix it yourself. You got a pair of bootstraps, pull them up. Jesus gives them what they need. Do you want to be healed? And Jesus said to him, get up. This is not pull up your bootstraps, by the way. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. We're not told a whole lot about this man. There's a little bit more that we're going to kind of investigate as part of the maybe first real backlash that Jesus receives in his ministry. We'll look at that next week. But this man doesn't doubt when Jesus tells him, get up. At once, he does it. It's not by his own power. 
the little boy in Capernaum who lived didn't do it by his own power. The Samaritan woman that found herself filled with a fire that had to tell people about Jesus, that, that didn't start inside of her. It's what Christ gave to her. Nicodemus, who spends the remainder of this gospel pondering the deep truths that Jesus has told him on a a night where they met in darkness, doesn't suddenly become the benefactor of Jesus' burial because he has great understanding of his own. It's because Jesus gave him the words he needed. This morning, you may be looking at your life and saying, I have a whole mess of things that I need, and I have no way of getting them. I have no power, no control, no ability to right the wrongs that I'm facing. I am paralyzed. On the other hand, you might be the person that's sitting there and thinking, there is nothing I need. My life is good. I have money in the bank. My health is fantastic. I just ran a six-minute mile. I'm doing swell. I've got employees underneath me who do what I tell them to do. I have a family that is perfectly in order, and everything that I need is at my fingertips. I'm going to be honest with you. There are still things you need that you can't provide for yourself. And it only takes one catastrophe to realize that in many ways we are all absolutely powerless. And where we are powerless, Jesus is very powerful. And there are signs and wonders that he wants to do in your life. And he may do them through the hands of the people that are sitting in this room this morning. He may do them just by you opening his word and finding comfort and peace in it. He may do it by by forcing you into an uncomfortable situation where you have to humble yourself. But Jesus can give you what you need. It doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. You need Jesus. Pray. Our Father in heaven, some of us are Nicodemus this morning. We are full of knowledge, things that we know and and study and marvel over. Some of us are the Samaritan woman who have a laundry list of past uh, problems and troubles that we carry around with us and others judge us by. Some of us are the official who seem to have life all together. And some of us are hopelessly paralyzed by the troubles that this world has cast on us. But there is not a single one of us that you are indifferent towards. There is not a person in this room this morning, not a person watching online, not a person in this world that you don't have deep and abiding a love for and an ability to bring what they need into their life. So Father, I pray this morning that we be your hands and feet in the situations we can, 
that we bless those that we encounter on a regular basis, regardless of who they are, regardless of what their background may be, regardless of what their need may be. If we can't fill their need, help us to point them to the one who can. And that will always be Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This morning, if you have need of the church,